the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years by approximately 40 men. Now, while there were 40 human pens, there was one Holy Spirit who was superintending over the revelation of God. Now, that revelation was progressive. God didn't reveal everything all at one fell swoop. You had many messages over decades, centuries, with additional details revealed with passing years. Abram was a pagan idol worshiper when God called him to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees to go someplace where he didn't know where he was going. And Abram got up and left and obeyed what God told him. And when God told him that he would have children as the stars of the sky, when he was an old man and yet childless, Abram believed God and took God at his word and thereby became the example of one who has faith and one who lives by faith. Now Abraham had a number of sons. It was through Isaac that God would carry on Abraham's line. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, but it was through Jacob that the line would flow. Jacob fathered the 12 patriarchs, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel went down to Egypt because of famine, and they were there for several hundred years, 430 years. They knew what it was for generations to be enslaved and persecuted. And God grew them. They were 75 in number when they went to Egypt. And when they came out, there were 603,000, and I think it was 550 men of military age. So they are now truly a nation when they came out of Egypt. God rescued them out of their slavery through Moses and brought them through the wilderness and brought them to the land of promise. And God ruled over them for a number of years. And you had the time of Joshua. You had the time of the judges. And then when Samuel was judging Israel and was the priest, the people rejected God as being their king and demanded that God give them a human king like the rest of the nations. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, as their first king. Saul was replaced by David, and God made a covenant with David where the that there would always be a king from David. David's line was going to be perpetual. And ultimately, the Messiah would come from the line of David. So you had David and you had Solomon rule over the combined kingdom. And in the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam, there was a split. Ten of the tribes, everybody except Judah, in Benjamin, and really the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi would stay because the temple was in Judah. Those other 10 tribes split and they formed their own kingdom, the northern kingdom, under the Jeroboam. Jeroboam immediately leads the people into idolatry. He realizes that the religious center, and, and Israel was a religious country, the religious center was in Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. And so because of that, Jeroboam set up two golden calves. Israel, here are your gods. And over the next couple hundred years in the northern kingdom, there are going to be 19 kings, not one of whom was a righteous king. Every one of them was steeped in idolatry. And God finally judged the northern kingdom. 722, here comes Assyria down from the north. They conquer the northern kingdom. They take those ten tribes away. 
and history now refers to those people as the 10 lost tribes. So if you were to ask somebody, are you of the tribe of Simeon? Are you of the tribe of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Issachar? All of these, no one would know. And so those tribes have basically been lost to history. Now Judah fared a little better. Judah, over a period of a little over 300 years, would have 20 kings. Five of those kings would be righteous rulers. Eleven were evil. And there were another four that kind of had one foot in each camp. There were times when they did not do well, and there were times where they did. There were times when they humbled themselves before God. And so at least there is some leadership influence in Judah. But the Judean kingdom, the southern kingdom, is steadily devolving. They are coming to a point where they're becoming more and more dominated by idolatry, more and more rebellious, and they're not listening. God is sending them prophets, and they're not listening. They're not hearing. They're not heeding. And so finally, God brings exile to the southern kingdom. That's going to come through Babylon, and it'll come in three waves. So in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar makes his first visit to Judah, and he takes away some of the riches from the temple, and he takes away some of the, the cream of the crop of the youth, including some of the royal family. So in this first wave of exile, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you might recognize them better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're taken away, and they go to Babylon. The second wave comes a few years later in 597 B.C., where they take away the rest of the riches from the temple. They cut up the golden shields, and they take all of that with them to Babylon. They take away Jehoiachin, who was the king at the time. He is taken in captivity to Babylon. And basically anybody who would be in the who's who of Judah goes away in that exile. So the tradesmen, the craftsmen, the military leaders. Basically, the only people left are the poor. It makes it easier to keep them in subjugation, right? If anybody who could be a leader just got taken away to Babylon. Now, one of those who goes away in 597 is a young priest by the name of Ezekiel. He goes in 597. Then, the third exile occurs in 586, and that is when Nebuchadnezzar comes back. He basically destroys Jerusalem and he destroys the temple, and the people are scattered. But even in judgment, God is not silent. So in the midst of all of that exile, you have Daniel in the royal court in Babylon. You have Ezekiel, through whom God is speaking to the exiles by the river Kabar in Babylonia. And you have Jeremiah ministering with those who are still remaining in Judah. And God is beginning to speak words of comfort. You've, God has brought the hammer. He's brought the nuclear option because of their steadfast rebellion. They wouldn't turn to famine when God brought famine. They wouldn't turn as, as God was ratcheting up pressure to bring them back to have them turn from their wicked ways. They wouldn't do it, they wouldn't do it, they wouldn't do it, and so God finally brings the option of, I'm kicking you out of the land. Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, he tells them, it's gonna last for 70 years. And through Jeremiah, he broaches a new topic. It's in the passage that Greg read for us this morning, and I don't know if you caught that, so Turn in your Bibles, if you're, still not there, if you're not still there, to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and with the house of Judah. So, we have a new covenant. Now, hopefully, that is bringing to your mind something that Jesus said. When, at the time of the Last Supper, when Jesus brings out the cup, he says, this is the new covenant which is in my blood. That's what the new covenant is. Now, who is the new covenant being made with? It's being made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, you and I, since the vast majority of people in this room are not Jewish, we need to remember that. That new covenant was made specifically with the house of Israel. You and I are being brought into that under that umbrella. And so the new covenant with Israel, with the house of Judah. Down to verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And you're not going to have to worry about anybody saying, you know what, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. Now that message is being preached to those who are still in Judah. Now let's flip over to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. In the book of Ezekiel, from chapter 36 through the end of the book in chapter 48, God basically lays out what is going to happen to the nation of Israel at the end of history. And he's going to make three promises to Israel in the book of Ezekiel. The first promise is there's going to be a promised salvation. We're going to see that in chapters 36 and 37. Second, there's going to be a promised deliverance. We'll see that in chapters 38 and 39. And then there's going to be a promised kingdom. And that's in chapters 40 through 48. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to take a flyover over these last 13 chapters of Ezekiel. Now, I see the looks on your faces. We're not going to do it verse by verse. I realize, you know, we, we get an hour a, a week, and so we're going to try to honor that. I'm going to give myself a little bit of wiggle room there. But the point being, we're going to take a flyover to see how it is that God, in a time of judgment, remember, this is through Ezekiel. So where is Ezekiel? He's in Babylon. He's preaching to people. He's, he's giving these words to people who have been exiled from their homes, many of whom are never going to see their home again. They're going to be there for 70 years. And so let's take the flyover. And this morning, we're going to look at Israel, the promised salvation. So if, we're in, if you're there, we're going to start in Ezekiel 36. We'll start in verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. The nation of Israel was to be the light to the Gentiles. They had the law, they had the prophets, they had the word of God, they had the temple, they had the holy of holies, they had God dwelling in 
the Holy of Holies. And they had all of these things, and by their obedience, by their being different, they were to be different in how they acted. They were to be different in how they ate. They were to be different in how they dressed. They were to be different in how they worshipped. And by that difference, and by their obedience, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. The other nations should be able to look at them and see that God was among them and bring glory to God by recognizing that he is God. He is the one true God. But that's not what happened. The people consistently rebelled. They consistently chose to ignore what God said. They consistently chose their own way. They went after idols, the very things that God hated, they brought and they put in God's temple. They killed, they persecuted those who spoke for God. There was no justice. The, the poor were oppressed. They were kept under the thumb. Nothing was as it should be. And so rather than bringing glory to God, the people of Israel brought shame. They brought reproach to the name of God. And God got to the point where I'm not having any of this anymore. So he expels them from the land, and yet even then, what's their response? They get to wherever it is that they've been dispersed, and they continue to live like they did when they got kicked out. And so they continue to bring reproach to the name of God. And God says, I'm going to deal with that but I'm going to deal with it myself. And so, go down to verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, in fact, we should stop here for a moment. You have to understand something about Ezekiel. Ezekiel has got probably one of the most unusual and one of the most personally difficult ministries of any of the prophets of God. Ezekiel was struck dumb. He couldn't talk unless the first four words out of his mouth were, thus saith the Lord. So people knew they may not listen, but they knew that when Ezekiel opened his mouth, it was God's word that was coming out. It was God's revelation that was coming out. He laid on one side of his body for 390 days, 15 months, laying on one side of his body as a, as a picture, as a skit to be acted out in front of the, the exiles. Then he laid on his other side for, I believe it was 70 days. There was one person in that exile who loved Ezekiel and whom Ezekiel loved his wife. God killed his wife for the specific purpose of being an object lesson to the exiles. Son of man, I'm going to take away from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke, yet neither shall you mourn, neither shall you weep. And when the people ask, what does this mean for us? Then you will tell them, I'm going to take away the desire of your eyes. I'm going to take away the temple. I'm going to destroy the temple. And they're not going to be in a position where they're going to be able to mourn or weep or do that. And so Ezekiel has got a tough ministry. And so here he is again. He's brought all kinds of judgment, words of judgment, Against, Israel, against Judah, against the Jewish people, against a lot of other neighbors of Judah. And yet now, in the midst of that, God begins to give the people hope. It's not always going to be this way. And in fact, there are days of incredible blessing ahead for you, for your people. Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name. 
You've been bringing reproach to my name. I'm going to bring about where people are going to know that I am the Lord and they're going to worship me as such. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And so he's not just going to bring judgment. He is going to bring about salvation. Now, the Jewish people had historically looked at the blessing of God being demonstrated in their liberty. When they were not in subjugation to somebody else, then God was blessing them. And that's how they tended to think. And remember, when you look at uh, the Jews in Jesus' time, what did they feel, what did they need in their mind to be delivered from? They needed to be delivered from Rome. And as long as Jesus was the guy who seemed to be getting them in that direction, where he would deliver them from Rome and their bondage to Rome, they were all for having Jesus around. But Jesus wasn't trying to save them from Rome. Jesus was going to save them from their sin. Domination by Rome was a temporary issue. It was restricted to this life. Yet their domination by sin, their slavery to sin, was something that would be eternal. Not just in this life. But, in, but the consequences in the life to come. And so Jesus came to set them free from that slavery. Jesus is talking, God is saying the same thing here to the exiles in Babylonia. And so you have the house of Israel, they are ceremonially unclean. That's the, when you look in verse 17, they've defiled it by the ways in their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. A woman in her impurity was not allowed to enter the temple. She was ceremonially unclean. She was barred from the presence of God by that condition. So in Isaiah, when it talks about our righteousness, the best that we can do is like filthy rags. That's a reference to that. The, that which we would hold forward as our best that would hopefully make us acceptable to God is the very thing that separates us from him. The best that we can bring is cannot be allowed into his presence. And that is the way that they have become. And so God is going to bring about for them salvation. Now this morning, we're going to look at that salvation under three headings. We're going to look at it under individual conversion. Then we'll look at something that is unique to Israel. This is only true of them among any nation on the face of the planet in all of history. We're going to look at the idea of corporate conversion, national conversion. And then the third it will be the reunification of the nation. Remember that for so decades now, Israel has been like North Korea and South Korea. There's a northern kingdom until they went into exile. And there was a southern kingdom. And there was no reunification. They were separate, and it was intended that they were going to be separate always. And so let's look at point one, individual conversion. Just the Old Testament manner of salvation is no different than the manner of salvation today. It was by faith through grace, by grace through faith, either way. The idea is, is that God is the actor, God is the initiator, man is a respondent. The same was true in the Old Testament. You were not saved by works in the Old Testament. You were saved by taking God at his word and believing what God said to be true. Remember, that's why Abraham was considered righteous, right? He 
believed God. He believed God when he got up out of his home and went not knowing where he was going to go. He believed God when God told him, your children, look at the skies. If you can number those, you're going to be able to number your descendants. Even though at that point, Sarah was barren, they had no kids. Abraham believed him. You'll recall when Abraham took Isaac and went up on Mount Moriah to offer Isaac as a burnt offering to God. In the book of Hebrews 11, we find that Abraham believed that God would resurrect him. He would raise him from the dead because God had promised that through Isaac, that line would go on. Now, you and I look at that, well, raising from the dead, I mean, we've got all kinds of examples of that. We've seen that on a number of occasions. Only difference is that had never happened in Abraham's day. That was brand new. There was no such thing as somebody being resurrected from the dead. But that's what Abraham believed God would do because God had made a promise. And Abraham believed God to be faithful. He believed him to be true. And thereby he acted on it. That's how people were saved in that day too. Salvation has always been a work of God. So note how God is going to work with these people, with the nation of Israel. Verse 23 I will vindicate the holiness of my great name that you've profaned. That's going to result in the nations knowing that I'm the Lord. I'm going to prove myself holy among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations. You're scattered. You're scattered so far, people don't know who you are and where you're from. But I do. And I'll gather you from all those places. I'm going to bring you back into your own home. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Now, this is a reference to the altar that's in the temple. There are two words in Hebrew for sprinkle. There's one, which is kind of the spritz. You know, you just take a little and, you know, give a little. Then there's another one, which is more, it's, it's in fact, the, the Septuagint translates it pour. And so it's more the idea of having your hand and, and throwing it out. It's used, uh, for instance, in se um, sowing seed, where you take a good heap and you throw it out, and you're, you're broadcasting much. And so the idea is, is that, you know, this isn't the little spritz. This word is, I'm going to sprinkle clean water. I'm getting my hand, and I'm, I'm getting you clean. The idea of sprinkling relative to the altar was an idea of being cleansed or being sanctified, being set apart. You would take the, of the, the blood of the offering and you would sprinkle it on the altar. You would pour it out on the altar. If you had one who was coming to be cleansed from leprosy, then they would come and the priest would sprinkle from the offering of the birds onto the person who was being cleansed. And so it's a picture of being washed. It's a picture of having the shame and the contamination of sin removed. The person would be clean. The person would be able to come into God's presence because their sin has been covered. It's been removed. So I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Those things that pollute you, I'm going to cleanse those. I'm going to cleanse you from them. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The heart of stone is one that is utterly unresponsive. It's not subject. It's, like it's, it's a conscience that is so beaten down that it no longer functions properly. It's a heart that, because it's of stone, it, it can't respond to the word of God. It can't respond to the gospel. And so God says, I'm going to do heart surgery on you. I'm going to do a transplant. I'm taking away the heart of stone. In its place, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, one that can be responsive to me, one that can be um, bent to me, toward me. So I'm going to give you a new heart. Verse 27, I will put 
my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Now, this is radical. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not given to each and every believer. And he wasn't given permanently. So for instance, Saul, King Saul, for a time, was given the Holy Spirit. Samuel said, the Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be a changed man. You're going to be a different man. People are going to be able to tell that you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, as he is repenting, one of the things that he asks of God, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And so the Holy Spirit wasn't a permanent fixture in anyone's heart, nor was he widely given. One of the signs of this new covenant is that I'm going to put my spirit in you. Spirit here is the word ruah, and we're going to see it in chapter 37. So just hold on to that one. We'll get to, uh, we'll see that again in chapter 37. I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. You're not going to have to depend on your ability to obey. I'm going to bring that about. How is it that anyone is kept in Christ today? Do we keep ourselves? Are we able, by our fidelity and by our obedience, are we able to consistently obey what God says to do? Does our salvation depend on us? It doesn't depend on us to begin with, and it doesn't depend on us to keep it. Again, God accomplishes that because we have his indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as Paul would say, being the earnest, being the down payment of our spiritual inheritance. We have God dwelling inside of us as the down payment, as the, uh, here's the example, here's the hors d'oeuvre, the main dish when we're in heaven and we're able to be in God's presence perpetually forever. And we'll be able to see him face to face. And so God says, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Verse 29, I will save you from all your uncleanness. And so here you have God as the actor. God being the one who is bringing all of these things to be. Verse 30, I'll, I'll multiply your provisions. You're not going to be in want because I'm going to take care of all of those things. Now, do the people have responses to this? Yes, they do. But note what the responses are. So in verse 27, God is going to put... Um, He's going to cause you to walk. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Their response, you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There is no such thing as a lackadaisical Christian. A believer, one who has been redeemed, is one who is intentional in obedience. It's not half-hearted. It's not careless these, are, these people have their minds set on personal holiness. Their mindset is one that they are fixed on knowing what God would have them to do and then doing that. And that includes in how they think. That includes in the attitudes that they adopt. So for instance, last week when Dave was going through Philippians 2 and he says, have this attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus. You need to think a certain way. You're not free to just think however you wish. You're not free to substitute something that God has revealed as true. You're not allowed to substitute something else. And so it's very intentional. 
these people are careful. Their, their desire, their emphasis is on pleasing God, on bringing honor and glory to him rather than bringing shame or reproach. You'll see a second one down in verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. They will be humbled. They're going to be those like of whom Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 66 too. But to this one I will look. He who is humble and who is contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. This is the idea of being contrite of heart. As you go back and they look, Israel was prone to idolatry, prone to it in every way, shape, and form. And now as they look back on that, they begin to get a sense of the wickedness of that manner of living. Do you find that true? I know you do, many of you, because I've heard you speak. I was like this. I would never dream of going back to that lifestyle because it wasn't something that honored God, it dishonored him. If I were to go through and live that way again, I would be bringing shame to the one who gave his life to redeem me. And so all of a sudden, the things that once had great allure now bring great shudder. How could I go back and live like this? And so signs of being redeemed are you're careful to know what God says and to do it. You look back at the former way of life and there's no way I could go back to that. Because again, it would bring shame to the name. There are going to be those that God can bless. Twice in the New Testament, this verse is quoted. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to set yourself, if you want to be blessed by God, you got to be humble. You have to put yourself under what God says rather than standing over it in judgment. When God says that marriage is between a man and a woman, marriage is between a man and a woman, and I better not be bringing up something else to put in its place. When God says that something is wrong, homosexuality is a sin. For me to say otherwise puts me in judgment of God's word. Now, I'm out of bounds if I take that step. What God declares to be sin is sin. It doesn't matter how many people think otherwise. When God says that something is righteous, it's righteous. Again, not mattering how many others say otherwise. And so God is saying, I'm going to bring this about for you. And this is happening to people as individuals. We have some people in this church who are Jews who are now also redeemed, and praise God for that. And what happens now in some select cases, one day is going to happen on a massive, massive scale. In fact, let's get to that. Let's look at chapter 37. Chapter 37, one of the most um, illustrative stories in Scripture the valley of the dry bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. So here comes Ezekiel out into a valley and this place is covered with bones. They're on the surface. They're not buried. They've been left out to the elements. So they're bleached. There's no skin left on them. There's no meat left on them. 
their bones, and they're dry. They've been around for a long, long time. So Billy Crystal can't look at this and say they're just mostly dead. These are dead. They're dismembered. They're disjointed. These aren't skeletons. These are bones that are scattered. There's no hope. Look, you can take these things. You can put them in the microwave. You're not going to be able to bring them back to life. They're dead. They're good and dead. And so, Ezekiel sees the bones. And God says to him, son of man. That was a term that was used much of Ezekiel in his prophecy. Son of man, can these bones live? Can you imagine Ezekiel standing and looking at all this and God asks him, can these bones live? And it's like, uh, I don't know. Which is basically what he says. Oh Lord, you know. Okay, God, if you want them to, they can, but I, I, I don't see how. And again, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. And frankly, anybody else watching this is going to know he's the Lord too. So here's the bones. No life. And Ezekiel, preach to them. Preach to them and declare what I just told you. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. That is a phrase that you see multiple times in Ezekiel's prophecy where God gives him a message and oftentimes it's not an easy message. When God killed his wife, that, mess that message came to him in the daytime. He says he went home that night and his wife died. And in the morning, I did as I was commanded. That is a hallmark of Ezekiel. He does what God, he, he accomplishes the job that God gives him. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling. And all of a sudden, the ankle bone is connecting to the shin bone. And the shin bone is connecting to the knee bone. And the knee bone is connecting to the, to the thigh bone, which is horrible anatomy and physiology, but it's great theology. And all of a sudden, these bones are coming together. Sinews are on them. All of a sudden, there's ligaments, there's connectors, there's connective tissue. Flesh grew, the meat's coming on the bones, the muscles, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. This word breath is our word ruah. It's the same word when God says, I will put my spirit in you. Same word. By the way, that's true in Greek also. When you see spirit and when you see a breath, it's the same type of, it's the same thing. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This isn't a couple of skeletons. This is a massive, massive army. It's a nation. And then God explains it to him. Here's why this is happening, Ezekiel. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and called you to come out of your graves. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord.
Israel is the only nation on the face of the planet to whom God has committed himself as a people. It wasn't just individuals. Nations are made up of individuals. But this is, one, this is something that was intended for them as a nation, as a whole. That's why you see it referred to. All of these yous are you alls. They're all plural. But there's one house of Israel. It's just one. And so here you have, I'm going to work in you as individuals. I'm going to bring you to salvation as a nation, as a people. And he doesn't stop there. Now he's going to use a picture, a parable. Verse 15 in, 30, in chapter 37. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, and you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. When the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by this? By these, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. So in other words, he's acting this out in front of them. It's like a skit. The sticks on which you will be in your hand. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they've gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with, it, or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. That has never been done. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have been divided since 930 B.C., going on 3,000 years and yet God's going to unite them again in one people and they're going to have one king and he's going to be a righteous king because he's going to be the son of God ruling can you imagine being on a river in a place a thousand miles from home a home you're never going to see again. And being told that there's a day coming when you're going to be redeemed, when your people are going to be redeemed, and when your people are going to be again forever unified. There's no lost tribes. Nobody got lost in the shuffle. Nobody slipped through the cracks. All of them are being saved. And all the rest of the nations are going to know that it's God who did it.
It wasn't Israel pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. They don't have any boots. They don't have anything to grab onto to do it. It's going to be accomplished by God. So, when's this going to happen? It hasn't happened yet. It's yet unfulfilled. This national conversion is going to take place during the tribulation. That seven-year period, the church has been removed, and the, that seven-year period is about the purification of the nation of Israel and bringing judgment on Satan, his minions, and unrepentant men. Those are the two primary thrusts of that tribulation time. That's when it's going to occur. Hasn't happened yet, but it will. And when it does, people are going to know that God is the one who's done it. He's the one who's brought it to pass. No different than how God has done that for each and every person in this room who's redeemed. That was a work of God. That wasn't us getting smart. That wasn't us waking up in the morning and having a V8. That was a work of God. He was the one who cleansed us. He was the one who redeemed us. He was the one who put life into us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It's all of him. And so it's going to happen during that time. Now, okay, why is this important to us? I'm a Gentile. Why is this important to me? For this reason. God made promises to Israel. They were unilateral promises. When he made a covenant, when, he, when God made the covenant with Abraham, God was the one who walked between the, the cut-up animals, not Abraham. Abraham's sleeping over here off to the side in a deep sleep. God took that commitment on himself. God committed himself to that promise. When God fulfills his promise to someone who doesn't deserve it, then perhaps I have hope that God will fulfill his promises to me when I don't deserve it. My sin is far worse. And I'm not alone. Your sin is far worse than anything Israel ever did because you and I have God's Holy Spirit in us. We have no excuse. I cannot be forced to sin. I have to agree to it. And so my sin in that way is so much worse than anything they ever did. And if God will fulfill his promises to them, then I can trust that he'll fulfill his promises to me. God is a faithful God. And even though right now it seems that this is something that's impossible, Yet God is going to bring it about. In fact, let's finish here. We've got a couple minutes. Flip over to Romans chapter 11. Now, those of you who have been here for a while, you remember we studied Romans not that long ago. It's a couple years now. And the first 11 chapters are all instruction. It's all doctrine. Then when you get to chapter 12 through 16, then you get into application. But here is how Paul finishes up his dissertation on truth and on doctrine. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's talking about Israel and Israel's relationship to the truth, to the gospel, and to the church. We'll start in verse, oh, I want to go back to 17, but we don't have that much time, so we'll go to 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. So this is something that's been hidden previously, but now it's being revealed. So, listen up, because this is the way things are. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Again, going back to Jeremiah 31. 
from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also, and again, this is referring to Israel, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. This was God's plan in temporarily setting them aside so that you and I could have salvation. And just as he set them aside, so he will once again take them back up so that he can fulfill his promises to them. And this is the response that he has. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who is first given to the Lord that he should be his counselor? Or who is given to the Lord that it should be repaid to him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. It's God's plan. It's the plan by which he is going to reap a harvest of a whole bunch of Gentiles, those of us who had no claim on him at all, none. And then he's going to use that to stir the hearts of Israel. And they are going to come to faith on a massive, massive scale. That's the promised salvation. Can the music team come up and we'll pray. Father, how unsearchable your ways are. We never could have come up with a plan like this. And we certainly couldn't have accomplished it. And we are so grateful that you alone are God, that you are in fact sovereign over everything. There is nothing that falls outside of your control. Your plans cannot be thwarted. They cannot be set aside. And Father, we're grateful that you in fact have extended your gospel to the corners of the earth. And we're grateful that you allow us to participate in that and that we are given the, the privilege of carrying your word. We're grateful for those who are in Alaska now proclaiming your truth. We're grateful for Timothy and Nancy as they're gonna go over and proclaim your truth in a foreign land. And Father, we are grateful that you are accomplishing your purpose. We're thankful that you're going to do it with your people Israel. That you are in fact going to carry out all of the promises that you made to them. And everybody is going to realize that you did it. That you're God. And so Father, we magnify you today. May we honor you with devotion and with obedience and faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen. I suppose I should tell you, there's a fire up at camp in Alaska. Uh, it's about, the fire's currently about three miles from the camp. They have evacuated uh, already some of the staff. Keisha and Samantha are both out in Fairbanks right now. And there's talk of evacuating the campers. There are some who have stayed back. Uh, Y'all know Joe's not leaving if there's a fire burning up at camp. And so um, it's unknown right now exactly what all is going to happen with all of that. And so we should be keeping that in our prayer for them and for the kids. God's sovereign over that too. And so the fact that it's happened, it's God's desire that it happened that way.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. And all God's people said, God bless you all. Oh, Messiah choir practice here in 20 minutes.